I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 871. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people comforted him, and he was comforted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Your name says a great deal about you, doesn't it? Your name tells people a great deal about who you are. And if you grew up in a community where everyone knew your mother or your father or your grandparents, when they found out your last name and they knew who you were related to, they knew a little bit more about you. If you went to school right after a brother or sister had already gone through school and they got down in the roll as the teacher was calling roll the first day of class and saw your last name and you got that question, oh, now are you related to so-and-so? Uh, the answer to that question was very important, especially depending on how well your brother or sister behaved when they went through class those years before you. That could be good or it could be bad. I like walking down this hallway and seeing the names that are up on this timeline. Uh, tonight, after our uh, evening service and over the next week, we'll be taking that down and, and laminating it and putting it up in a classroom hallway. And it's a powerful thing to look at those names and who, and who those names represent, the families that have been a part of this church. You know, there's a name outside on the sign. Uh, there's a name back on the Welcome Center on brochures that we hand our visitors. There's a name we carry around every day. And that is the name of Christ. And that should tell people a lot about us. It should tell people a lot about who we are. And if we're going to carry around the name of Christ, we need to determine what that means. What do we represent as the church of Christ? What kind of message are we carrying out to the world? And so this morning, we're going to look at that subject. What's in a name? We just sang about hailing the power of Jesus' name. What does it mean to represent that name? A few years ago, a governor named Christian Herder was the governor of Massachusetts. And as he was nearing the end of his first term in office, he was seeking re-election. And it's campaign season around here. You've seen the commercials and the signs. So you can imagine, as he went out on the campaign trail, he was going day and night, making appearances at special events, shaking people's hands, asking for votes. And there was one day when he was out all day campaigning. In fact, he had gotten up so early that he missed breakfast, and he worked straight through lunch. And so it came time to dinner. He had one final appearance to make, and that was a dinner on the grounds. And they were serving fried chicken. And he tells the story about coming up to the lady that was serving the food, and he was starving. And so he goes through, and she gives him one plate, piece of chicken on his plate, and she looks to the next person in line, and he says, Excuse me, miss, I hate to, to bother you. I hate to be a problem, but is there a way I could get another piece of chicken? I'm very hungry. She looked at him, and she said, Oh, I'm sorry. We're only giving one piece of chicken per person. Then she looked to the next person in line. He said, well, it's just that I wouldn't ask it if I weren't just famished. You see, I've been working all day. I've missed lunch. I've missed breakfast. Could you please just make an exception just this once and give me an extra piece of chicken? And she looked at him and she said, sir, I've been instructed to give only one piece of chicken per person. Everyone else here has received one piece of chicken. You were going to receive one piece of chicken. And then she looked to the next person in line. Now, apparently, uh, Christian Herder was not a person who was egotistical or threw his weight around a lot, but he decided he was going to throw out his title. 
for this lady. Maybe she didn't know who he was. Maybe that would help speed things along. So he asked her the question. He said, do you know who I am? She looked right back at him and said, no, I don't. He said, I am the governor of the great state of Massachusetts. And he paused to let that sink in, have its full effect there. She looked him right back in the eye and she said, sir, do you know who I am? And he looked her over and he thought, she isn't someone who donated to my campaign. I don't think I've met her before. He said, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, I am the lady that's in charge of this chicken. Now move down the line. (laughs) It doesn't matter who we are or what our position is. It's difficult to handle authority, isn't it? We, We have sort of a reluctance to accept authority from other people. And nowhere is that more true than in the area of religion. When someone starts dictating what we should or should not do with our spiritual lives, when we come together as a church, someone starts giving commands, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, we are taken aback by that. It's not a fun topic that we like to discuss. And yet we have the principle of authority in every other area of our lives. It's the weekend, so I'll use an example that many of us can relate to. Friday night and Saturday... And even today, there will be several games played across the country. And if you go to any sporting event and sit up in the stands, I don't care if it's high school, college, professional, you are going to hear several different opinions about the calls that are being made in the game. I mean, you can sit and hear tens, hundreds, even thousands of people voicing their opinions. This should have been inbounds. This should have been out of bounds. This was no good. They shouldn't have called this penalty. You hear all of these different comments, yet there are only a few people on the field who have the authority to decide whether or not something is inbounds or out of bounds, whether or not a field goal was good or whether it wasn't, or whether a penalty should be called or it shouldn't. There are only a few people who have that authority. And so when we come to the area of religion, it really doesn't matter. We could have hundreds of different opinions of what we should do when we come together as Christians. But there's only one source of authority that we have to look at. And this morning, I'd like for us to consider what that means, to look for authority in religion. And so as we come together and think about that, you may be visiting with us. And if you are, we'd like you to know how excited we are that you're here. We really hope that we can be a help to you and encouragement to you. And so there may be some questions you have after this lesson we'd love to follow up with and and talk with you about. But we're going to go over some of our core beliefs and, and core principles, things that make us who we are and determine the way that we live and the way that we act. And these are our standards we're seeking desperately to attain. And we want you to join us in this study. For those of you who have been going through our fall focus, this may be familiar ground to you. But it's always good to remind ourselves why we do what we do. What are our core beliefs and our core values? And so as we think about authority this morning, we'll be flipping to several different passages. I hope you brought your Bibles so that you can go with us. Some of these passages will be on the screen, others won't, but we want to get a sense of what the breadth of the New Testament states about authority. And as we begin the very beginning of the Bible, in fact, the very first four words of the Bible indicate who has authority in our lives. The first question we need to ask is, who's in charge? Who makes the rules? Who do I need to follow? And in the very first verse of the first chapter of Genesis, we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And those first four words tell us a great deal about the God we're going to read about all the way through the Bible. In the beginning, God. Everything that we have around us, all of our our friends, family members, the places we live, the world we inhabit exists only because of the power and the love 
of God. And so if I'm looking for someone who has authority over my life, it would be the person who created me, the being that created me, and God has that kind of power. We also see in Jesus' ministry that the Father gave Jesus power and authority. If you have your Bibles, flip over to John 17. John 17, the first couple of verses, we see Jesus as he's nearing the end of his life on earth, and he's talking to his Father in heaven. And he says here, beginning in verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And we get this picture here as Jesus prays to the Father, that the Father has given him that authority throughout his ministry. And the next time that you read through the Gospels, look for how many times Jesus mentions the will of his Father. He'll say things like, I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me. Fulfilling his Father's will, his commands, his message. And so we get this sense that God the Father and God the Son are in complete unity, in complete agreement in Jesus' mission on earth. And the Father has given him authority. And not only that, but just a chapter earlier in the book of John, in John 16, in verse 13, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come. He refers to the Holy Spirit as a comforter who would come and guide them into all truth. And we find out that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And so you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the, the mystery of the Trinity we'll never be able to fully wrap our minds around in complete unity and complete agreement as to the mission on earth. And so if I'm going to look for someone who has authority, I need to look not only at the Creator, but I also need to look at Jesus in His life. It's interesting to read through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus is pictured as one with authority. God wants us to make no mistake about it, to be very clear from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that Jesus had authority. You may remember after probably the most famous discourse that our Savior ever presented, the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the people were astonished after they listened to His words. They were astonished because He taught with authority. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, we see that they come to a point where they're astonished by everything they've heard. And notice what verse 29 says. He taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. You see, they were amazed and astonished because Jesus' teaching was different than any other religious teaching that they had been exposed to. And it's interesting with that in mind to go back and to look at what is spoken throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You see Jesus coming to subjects where they had very, very clear understandings of certain commands. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. You've heard this always said, now I say to you. He's taking those commands and he's expanding them. He's broadening them. And only Jesus has the authority to do that. For example, they all knew that murder was wrong. And Jesus says, you've heard that is wrong, but I say to you, it's wrong to hate a brother. It's wrong to store up that hate in your heart. You've heard that adultery is wrong, but I say to you that lust is wrong. And so Jesus is taking these Old Testament commands. He's broadening them as he prepares to usher in the kingdom, usher in the church. And only Jesus has that kind of authority. It set him apart from any other religious teacher of that day. And it sets Jesus apart from any other religious teacher of our day. Only Jesus had the authority to teach the way that he taught, especially on the Sermon on the Mount. We see that case in point. He also had authority over nature. Mark tells us a story in Mark chapter 4 of the disciples being in a boat with Jesus. And you have to remember that the men, when Jesus called his apostles, uh, we know as, that we see them leaving fishing boats even to come and to be a part of uh, what Jesus was doing. And so these were not inexperienced men at sea. 
And so he's here in the boat there and his followers are with him and the, the waves start uh, stirring up and the storm begins to, to uh, come around them with winds blowing and, and who knows what else was happening there. And if you've ever been caught in the midst of a storm in a boat, you can imagine the fear that was going through his followers' mind. And so they wake him up and notice with the, the simple sentence, peace, be still. In Mark 4, verse 39, he's able to calm the wind to calm the sea. And look in verse 41, how they respond to him. Who is this man? Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus taught with authority. He had authority over nature. And as we see Jesus' ministry lived out in the miracles that he performed, he also had authority over unclean spirits. He had the authority to cast out demons from people who were possessed with demons. There's one case in point here in Luke chapter 5 when we see Jesus as he is letting people know his power. He casts out these demons and look at what they say in Luke chapter 4 rather, verses 35 and 36. They say, what a word this is, for with authority and power he casts out unclean spirits and they come out. With authority and power Jesus could speak the words to cast out spirits, to solve problems that mankind on its own couldn't solve. So we see this authority extend all throughout Jesus' ministry. And that authority even extends to the realm of forgiveness of sins. He had the authority to forgive others' sins. And in Luke chapter 5, when we read about him dealing with a man who was paralyzed, not only does he tell the man that he is healed, that he's able to rise up and walk, but he also tells him that his sins are forgiven. And we need to stop for a second and think of what a statement that would have been when you're surrounded in the first century by those who were Jews who knew that only God had the power to forgive people of sins. Only God had the power to say whether or not someone's sins were forgiven. And by claiming to have that power, Jesus is sending a very clear message that he has authority from God the Father. That he is the Messiah from God. And so he tells them in verse 24 that he wants them to know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. This authority even extends through to the point where Jesus has the authority to lay down his life. He says in John chapter 10, verse 18, that no one took his life from them. He laid it down. He says, I lay it down of myself. And so it's important for us to understand when the crucifixion takes place, it's not because Jesus and his disciples were outnumbered by the soldiers that came to arrest him. It's not because Jesus was so worn out after the scourging that he couldn't put up a fight or put up any resistance when they wanted to nail him to the cross. The only reason that the cross of Christ happened was because Jesus laid down his life in accordance with the plan of his Father. That's the only reason. No one had the authority to take his life from him. Only Jesus had the authority to lay it down. And so we see Jesus' authority extend all throughout his ministry. It's also interesting as we think about the promise he gave his apostles of the Holy Spirit coming, the Comforter who is going to guide them into all truth. He told them in John 16 and verse 13 that the Comforter would come, guide you into all truth, and he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And remember, he proceeds from the Father. So again, you've got this picture of all three members of the Godhead being in complete, total agreement and unity. And if the Holy Spirit guided the apostles into all truth, that's a very comforting message for me. Because that means I can know, because God sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God came, guided the apostles into all truth. They recorded it in the words of the New Testament. 
I have with the Old and New Testament, the words of the Bible, and that there are no other prophecies, no other revelations necessary. The Holy Spirit guided them into all truth. And I've got all of it that I need for salvation. And so if if someone comes along and says, well, I have an additional revelation, I have an additional message, I have something else that we can just add into the gospel, sort of like a PS to what happens right after the New Testament, I can know the Holy Spirit was going to guide the apostles into all truth. And so I have all the truth necessary for salvation right here. Now, why is it necessary for us to go through the scriptures and look at verses about God the Father and about Jesus and His authority and the Holy Spirit and the authority of God's Word? It's necessary because if we're going to talk about who determines what we do when we worship, who determines what we do in our religious lives, who determines what we do spiritually, we have to understand that our search begins and ends with God and His Word. If we're looking for spiritual authority, our search should begin and end with God and His Word. That may sound like a very basic point. That may sound like something you'd expect to hear in a, in a sermon when you're looking at the Bible, but it's very key, it's very significant for understanding how we're going to come together, how we're going to live as a church. I don't know how many of you have ever had a job in which you had more than one supervisor. My very first job, I worked at a miniature golf course, and we had at least three or four bosses. And so you'd get started doing one job that one boss had told you to do, and then someone else would come over and say, what are you doing over here? You should be doing this over here. And you'd have to run over and do that. Then a third one would come over and give you some sort of job that you didn't even know how to do. And while you're trying to figure that one out, you see one of the former bosses coming by, and why haven't you got this done? And all of a sudden, you're trying to please everyone and keep everyone happy, and it's just impossible to do. When we come to the religious realm of our lives, there's only one authority. There's only one boss. That's good news. That simplifies life for us. I don't have to worry about living my religious life in a way that keeps other people happy. I just need to worry about keeping God happy. I need to worry about pleasing Him. That's the only supervisor I have in my spiritual life. And so it's very good news to think about the one who has authority. And the next question that we have to ask once we've discovered who has authority in our lives, is how do we respond to it? Here's the application part of the message this morning. What are we going to do? All right, so now God is the sole authority in our lives. How does that affect our religious life? How does that affect the way we live every day? Well, when we look at the Lord's church throughout the book of Acts, there are several things we see that we, if we want to be a member of the Lord's church, are striving to emulate and to replicate here in our lives. Number one, we want to obey only the authority that God has given us. And so when we look through the early church, we see that early Christians didn't have one kind of centralized headquarters that everyone, everyone sort of got their directions from. And when they established churches, they said, now make sure that you're keeping in touch with this one centralized headquarters that will tell you everything you need to know. In fact, we see that when Paul was going around establish, helping establish churches, he was making sure that there were men who were appointed to be elders, to lead that congregation. That's why he left Titus in Crete, was to appoint elders. And in the books of Titus and in 1 Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, another young preacher, he gives some very specific qualities of what an elder should be, very specific qualities of what a deacon should be. And we see God's plan and God's design for church leadership as a group of men who, through study and prayer, are leading a congregation to be closer to God, to fulfill His mission. And so as we think about the church even today, that is what we are striving to do. Have elders that lead us, deacons that serve us and and lead ministries of service. 
And we don't have a centralized headquarters that tells us what needs to happen because we're trying our best, absolute best, to follow God's plan of leadership. And that's what we see. And as we think about God's plan of leadership, it becomes necessary to obey only His commands. You see, when Jesus walked the earth in His ministry, He was dealing with a situation in which Pharisees and and Sadducees and other teachers of the law had not only taken the old law, but they'd also put in a lot of their own thoughts, their own ideas, and their own commands, and they were putting them on the same level as God's Word. And Jesus didn't stand for that. In fact, He said they were teaching His doctrine, the traditions of men. And what's interesting is that practice wasn't only in the day of Christ. That practice was present even when Paul was writing to the Galatians. Paul was dealing with a group of people who were taking some old practices from the Old Testament and trying to kind of plug them in to Christianity. And Paul makes a very, very interesting statement in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. As he's dealing with this, he says in Galatians 1 verse 8, Even if we or an angel from heaven preaches the gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now I want to pause for a moment and let us think about how strong that language is. Not let him be corrected, not let him be reprimanded, but let him be accursed. Paul is saying it is serious business to change the words of God. It is serious business to change the commands of God. If Paul, the apostle who wrote all those books that we read in the New Testament, didn't feel that he had the authority to change God's word, who am I to have the authority to to mold God's word into what I'd like it to be? If an angel from heaven didn't have the authority to change God's message, then who am I to do that? And so it becomes very important for us to obey only that message. As we think about this, there are some other teachings throughout the New Testament that shed a lot of light on how we live this out day by day. As we think about Colossians chapter 1, I want us to read a verse that Paul writes here that helps us understand what it means to obey only God's Word. He says in verse 18, he's describing Christ. He says, "...and He is the head of the body, the church." who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. If I want to be a member of the Lord's church, I'm going to have to give the preeminence to Christ. It can't go to anyone else. It must go to Christ. He's the head of the church. In him all things hold together. And so if I'm a part of the Lord's church, I'm giving preeminence to Christ. If I'm not doing that, I need to examine where I am. And say to myself, now wait a minute, if Paul said that Christ should be given the preeminence, maybe I need to put that example more seriously and more actively in my own life. I think it's interesting to see how Peter and Paul wanted to be treated throughout their ministry. You can imagine if you were in, living in the first century and you were a Christian and, and you saw Peter and Paul and they'd done all these, God had done all these miracles through them and it was just so wonderful to get to meet them you might be tempted to treat them as if they were a little more special, maybe a little more than your average person. You might remember that in Acts chapter 10, when Peter comes to the house of Cornelius, then Acts chapter 10, Cornelius runs out to him. In fact, in in verse 25 of Acts 10, he bows down before him. And Peter's response in verse 26 is very enlightening. He says, stand up. I myself am also a man. Peter doesn't say, you know, I did preach the first gospel sermon. That's pretty impressive. You know, I was there on the day of Pentecost. I am about to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles. I guess that is pretty special. He says, I'm a man just like you are. 
Paul and Barnabas ran into a similar problem when they went into Lystra later on in the book of Acts. They had men that were bowing down before them, treating them as if they were the pagan god Zeus and, and Hermes. And it's interesting, they have a very similar reaction in Acts 14, verse 15. They say, we are also men with the same nature as you. Now, if Peter and Paul both told people not to worship them, not to bow down before them because they were just men like them, I need to realize that I don't need to put any human being on the same plane as God. If I'm, if I'm a part of a group that puts a human being on the same plane as God or on the same plane as Christ, I'm not following Peter and Paul's example. Their example was to say, we're men just like you. We're serving and exalting Christ. And so as a member of the church, that's what I want to do. Give Christ the preeminence and not any other person or any other command of a human being. It's interesting as we look at the early church and see sort of how they struggled with not only obeying that authority, but, but claiming that authority. As we think about the name we have on, on our sign that we display to the community, the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, where did we come up with that name? Did we just look around and say, well, you know, this name hasn't been taken. It sounds, I think it sounds pretty good. I think people would like it. You know, it fits real nicely in a sign, and it, it sounds real Mount Juliet Church of Christ. I like that name. Well, it's interesting to see that in the first century church, they struggled with how they were going to be known. And there were a a few people in the Corinthian church that started dividing off into factions over famous preachers, famous people that were coming in and evangelizing the area. And so there were some groups that Paul's dealing with that wanted to be in Paul's camp. There were some groups that wanted to be in Peter's camp or Apollos' camp. Now, they were all preaching the same gospel. It wasn't a doctrinal issue. They just identified with a person that maybe had baptized them, maybe had taught them, a person that they admired. And so the ironic tragedy of it is when Paul's dealing with it, there's a group that says, I'm of Peter. There's a group that says, I'm of Paul. A group that says, I'm of Apollos. And then there's even a group that says, I'm of Christ. As if Christ was on the same level as Peter or Paul or Apollos. And so as Paul deals with that in verse 13, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he continues throughout that entire chapter to exalt Christ. You see, when he was faced with people who wanted to be called by names of other men, he's pointing back to Christ. And so that tells me, if I want to truly follow God and be a member of his church, I need to have a name that I wear that exalts Christ. And so as we think about what it means to carry that name, Uh, There are a few names that we see in Scripture that are descriptions of what the church is. Uh, It's referred to as the church, the church of God. Paul uses that several times to describe the church. The body of Christ, uh, churches of Christ. Uh, Jesus would call it my church. We have uh, the church of the Lord, church of the firstborn, the church of the saints. All these are biblical descriptions. And you know what they all have in common? Even when we think about descriptions of the people, like the saints or the followers of the way, or all these descriptions of those early Christians, all of their names, when we read them in context, give glory and ownership to God. They give glory and ownership to Christ. They're exalting the name of Christ. He's been given the preeminence. They're pointing back to Him. And so, if I want to be known in my community as someone who follows Christ, I want to use one of these biblical Names. It's interesting, even in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul will use several of these names in the same book. I mean, does that mean that Paul was referring to the body of Christ that meets in Corinth, and also the church of the saints that meets in Corinth, and another group that meets in Corinth? Absolutely not. He was using those as descriptive terms for the one church that Christ established, the one church that he died for. And so using any of these names would be biblical. Of course, 
it makes sense for us to use one consistently so that people can identify who we are. But when we put a name on our sign, we're not trying to designate ourselves as a denomination. We're trying to describe who we want to be and who owns the church. We're wanting to describe the fact that we're striving every day to be better members of the Lord's church. We want to do just what His Word says. And that's what our name means. We don't want to set ourselves apart as a different group that's practicing a different gospel. We want to follow the gospel found in the New Testament. We're not perfect as we do that. In fact, the only thing that is perfect about this congregation or any other is the God that we serve. The Father that that created us, Jesus that died for us, the Holy Spirit that inspired God's Word. God is perfect. We are going to fail. We are going to stumble. And so we don't claim perfection on any of these accounts. In fact, we have to strive every day to get better. But at the same time, we want to follow that one authority. Your name says a lot about you. And if we carry the name of Christ, that's going to say a lot about us. I want us to think about one last story, and then we'll close. Hopefully take this with us all throughout the week. One of my favorite stories is told about a man who was walking around a downtown area and he was looking for a place where he could get some laundry done. In particular, he needed some pants cleaned and pressed. And so as he was carrying it around downtown, he saw a store with a big sign in the window that said, Pants Pressed Here. And he was excited. He thought, here we go, this is my place. So he walked in and he throws down all of his pants there on the desk of the man who worked there. And he said, sir, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to need these done by the end of the week. He said, I saw your sign outside that said, pants pressed here. I'm going to need these taken care of. And the man behind the desk laughed and he said, sorry, sir. He said, we're, we're a sign company. We don't actually press pants here. We just make signs. And I think it's interesting for us to ask ourselves the question, are we really who our sign says that we are? If I go around every day wearing the name of Christ, am I really acting like who I say I am? Am I really living up to that name? Am I representing it well? Am I obeying only His authority? Am I claiming only His authority? And this morning, if you're here and you want to put on the name of Christ, you want to submit only to His authority, to submit your will to His, to turn back from the life that you have been living and confess not only your sins, but also the fact that you believe that Jesus is Lord, that you want to put His name on in baptism, that you want to live a life that submits to that authority, there's no better place and no better time than to do it right now. And you can become a member of the Lord's church. As we've studied in Acts chapter 2, no one here adds anyone to the church. The Lord adds individuals to the church. And so as we offer this invitation, it's not an invitation we offer so that we can give you something special, but it's an invitation we offer so that the Lord can add you to His church. And if you want to accept that invitation this morning, or if there's any other way we can help, please come.